0: This presentation is from UX Australia 2018, held in Melbourne. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Thanks, Scott. Today we'll be talking about context sensitive help, and this is after some interesting presentations earlier in this room about the ethics of design and the politics and the economics of design. And this is um, really where the rubber hits the road a little bit in terms of getting down to the design itself. This is um, a topic that I'm very interested in, I've always been very interested in it. Um, what we'll be looking at is, is the, the why, what, and how of context-sensitive help, also known as contextual help or embedded help. Um, and I'll start with a little context about myself. I'm the context. I'm the content strategy director at AKQA. My career started as a copywriter, and I've always been about the words. And I work with designers all the time, but my focus is is generally about what are we actually writing in the experiences that we create. Um, but but it's it's bigger than that. And I think, if we were to answer Laurie's question earlier about what is my story, I. I walked past a box full of old used post-it notes recently at the office and I saw one that was out of a brainstorm where we were talking about what we do and I thought this is actually a better business card. I make hard things on the internet easier, you know, and I think that's what a lot of us in this room probably do, you know, we're just trying to make the friction go away and we all experience it as user designers, as, as writers. We we know what it's like to, to find those barriers that are slowing us down, and um, that's a lot about what context sensitive help is about. In short, context sensitive help is concise. It's based on your current state, so we're looking at where you are right now. It's not it's not the excuse me it's not the FAQ page in the back of the website, and it. Gives you help with minimal disruption and lets you keep moving along your way. And you know, I think we'll probably understand, you know, philosophically why this is important. But there's, an, there's a great video in the on the on Jacob Nielsen's website, and Jacob Nielsen is one of my UX heroes. He's been uh, talking UX since the very earliest days. And he he when he was in London, he he shot a video in front of one of these little painted street signs about, this is the kind of information that saves lives. It's giving people who are right in the moment the information they need to do the right thing. And I think what's important about it is that it also understands that context-sensitive help isn't for everyone, but it's for those users who need that help. And it doesn't get in the way of the people who maybe don't need it. But the idea is that it's there for those who do. And it can make a real difference. And I think as designers, as writers, we forget what the context of our users is and how what we see so well isn't what they always see. And I thought as a little demonstration of that, take a look at this image. Now, when I look at this image, I know exactly what that is. I cannot not see what that is. But for a lot of you in this room, it's, it's probably hard for you to make sense of that. It looks a bit like a Rorschach. But when you put context around this image, when you frame it, when you give help, suddenly that's, that's the face of a cow. And now it's obviously a face of a cow. And now when you see it again, you can't not see the cow in the image. And I think that's the kind of kind of, transformational information experience that we need to do more often in, in digital experiences, where we're getting people across the line that we don't even see the line anymore. Um, it's, it's good to just take a take a step back and look at some of the types of, of contextual help and see what's possible. And for a lot of you in this room, it's all something that you know, but um, I thought it would be good to, to look at it again. Um, Probably the most familiar form of context sensitive help is inline help. And I'm, I'm showing you an example from Kickstarter because I think sometimes we forget that we can make this type of help better. We just think it's just the thing that's there and we'll deal with it later. But Kickstarter realizes that when people are putting in their email address, they're probably going to put in a Gmail address. They're not putting a, We know that. So if you spell Gmail wrong, Kickstarter doesn't just say "sign in failed" as so many web experiences do. They give you help. They tell you this is the problem. I mean, I, th- I think probably if there's one aspect of context-sensitive help we should all make better, it is the login experience because we all find ourselves as even no matter how many years you spend building websites, we are still struggling with our 27 passwords. Um, you know, the next is the kind of the classic context-sensitive help, um, the tooltip, the hover-over, and this is um, kind of meta context-sensitive help. It's the mouse-over mouse-over on the Wikipedia <laughs> site. Um, this is something that we should do more, and we don't because we don't think about doing it, I think, but it gives you a little bit of context that if you want it, It's there for you. And and you can put links in in this type of context-sensitive help. Again, the possibilities are are quite robust, but we have to be thinking about those possibilities and planning those possibilities. Um, The embedded help center kind of sits on the edge of of contextual help, um, where there's a button right there, help and feedback, always welcoming you to find out more. If you make it contextual, if you put easy links that are right for where you are in the site, that's useful, and it also gives you a, an entry point for more help, which is good too. But it's also complicated. It's getting in the way a little bit more, and you know, it has its pluses and minuses. Um, the, the walkthrough, or the tutorial, is something that's relatively new. There are, there are third parties that will help you do these um, really well. You know, it's surprising that we don't see more of this because we can put the help into the page, show you what it is that you should be doing if you're a little confused. We don't have to tell you. I mean, I've I've scripted videos and where we take you through the steps to register for something, and I think I would never watch this video. I would assume that I could do this without watching a video. And I think a walkthrough that's built into the page gives you that understanding without pulling you away which is really logical of course you know we as digital designers we think we can solve the problem but humans are really good at solving problems and a lot of the organizations that we work with are are full of help humans there to help and so we will we'll often build an online chat component into the experiences that we're creating, but we may not be thinking about whether that's contextual. And I think that's an operational question for a lot of organizations. Can we get the contact center to know what's happening? But it's worth doing, because especially for high-value moments, it's worth having a human being involved if you're buying a laptop or something like that. So this is an example from John Lewis. Of course, you know the world is going the opposite direction. and. Um, Artificial intelligence gets better and better. And, um, you know, oh, Clippy. Um, Clippy's been a problem for the context-sensitive help world for a while. Um, It lived 10 years, actually. And um, I'm sure there are many people in the room who have no memory of Clippy, but for those who do, There was nothing more infuriating than Clippy popping up in Microsoft Word and saying, it looks like you're writing a letter. Um, You didn't need Clippy to tell you that, and you didn't really want to talk to Clippy at that moment because you wanted to write a letter. And I think Clippy is a good example of artificial intelligence that isn't working. It's kind of in your face, and we don't want to do that as designers. It should be something that's there for you if you need it. And I think um, a better example and kind of a the way a lot of organizations are going is something that we did recently for HESTA, just a, a chatbot that knows what people coming into the site are looking for. HESTA is a, a superannuation fund here. And um, because there are so many familiar questions that go to the call center, especially, you know, what's my balance? What is, what is your ABN? Things like that. We can build that into a chatbot very easily and make a very good experience. Um, You know, It's it's still hard, and there are a lot of moments where chatbots will say, sorry, too hard. Um, But it's worth getting that right as much as we can and and making sure that that experience is as good as it can be, because it's it's where help is going. Um, Slack is a great example of nice chatbot functionality. You can always talk to Slackbot wherever you are in the Slack experience. I don't know if you've used Slack. I'm sure many of you do. It's a messaging app. And... Um, the way that it kind of acknowledges what you're doing in Slack, so you can, if you ask a question like, can I edit a message, it has a little personality, it makes a mistake in its response and tells you that, yes, you can edit a message, and that's, that's the kind of um, human-centric, user-centric um, artificial intelligence that I think we should all be aiming for. So now... The bigger question perhaps is, how can you get context-sensitive help right? What what do we need to be doing as designers, as content specialists? Um, As a starting point, make yourself a subject matter expert. And by this, I I don't actually mean talking about CSH, but I do mean that a little bit later. We are all, we all need to be very knowledgeable about the products, services, organizations that we are working with, working for. That enables context-sensitive help, and I'm sure there are many designers in this room. As a, as a content specialist, sometimes I find designers don't think that it's, it's as much their accountability to be really knowledgeable about the products and services. The focus is more on the user, but you really can't get context-sensitive help right unless you know the subject matter as well as you know the users. And, I did a little look at who's speaking here and um, tried to get, get a sense of who they are from their bios. And you see there's a little content specialist, there are a couple of us here. Um, but in general, we're all, this is a very design focused group and design is better when it's very knowledgeable about both the user and about the subject matter. And it, and it enables you to ask the questions that you need to early on to get it right. Um, of course, you also have to be a CSH expert. And I do not pretend to be a, a contextual help expert. I learned pretty much everything I needed to learn for this presentation on the internet. Um, good place to go. Um, but are great resources. There's a, there's a site called MIO Build that explains you know, makes recommendations for timing around um, motion design for tooltips and things like that. It's all out there. There's tons of information that you can gather. Um, and along with that um, comes the need to think about contextual help very early in the process. You need to scope it, cost it, plan it up front, because there have been occasions on projects where we suddenly realize that we need more help in, in the experience. but all the requirements have been signed off. The build is going to go ahead, and you know, my worst, my least favorite expressions are MVP, meaning minimum viable proposition, and phase two, um, because you know, MVP usually is just barely, and phase two sometimes never happens. So, um, definitely make sure you're thinking about this early because there's a cost, and Look at that cost. I mean, compare the sensitivity of the context and the cost. Make sense of what is worth doing. Because of course, if you're going to do a walkthrough or something like that, that's a pretty hefty component. And that no one is really thinking about it when they're starting the project. So make sure you're you're starting with a good sense of what you should what you could be doing so that you can make a recommendation about what you should be doing. Personalizing help, I think, is something that we don't talk about very much. You know, there's a lot of talk about website personalization especially, but I don't think it always lives up to its promise. Sometimes I just feel like we've put different banners in the carousel that nobody's looking at. You know, I think we need to make the experience of personalization a lot better when you need that personalization, and I think eBay does a really good job of that. If I'm looking for help on eBay and I'm logged into eBay, and something hasn't arrived and I want to know what to do next, they know what I've purchased on eBay. So if I'm getting that information about what to do and I want to start the process of reporting something that I need to get reported, it's right there for me. So so often help is kind of put to the side, but let's pull help into the experience because that's what people really want. Um, The next couple suggestions are kind of a little bit facetious, but very real, and um, you know I think help isn't always a focal point, and sometimes it's left to the developer to do the help or someone else, and I'll show you a couple of cautionary tales of context-sensitive help that I hope that you can take to heart because, again, it's an accountability question. Who owns the context-sensitive help? Who's making sure it's right? Because you may have a QA team, but they may not be thinking that's their role, This is is on an Australian telco site. Um, You put in your number when you want to sign up for something, and it tells you the service does not match the market segment of your user account. Now, I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know whether I should be contacting a marketing director at the company to find out about my market segment. I I just left it there. Um, But obviously, someone thought that there might be a need for an explanation, but there wasn't a lot of follow-through on the explanation. And then this is... This is an example of where the intention was good, but the follow-through was really lacking. This was for this is for a chain of health centers. Now they built the tooltips in. <laughs> they they described them, but they didn't actually write them. So that clicking on the tooltip to find out that it's a tooltip is not the information that you were hoping to find in the tooltip. So definitely take time. I mean. All of us, if we are in the business of building websites, building apps, spend time with your babies. Nurture them when they're born. Make sure that they're right, because you'll find this all over the web. If you Google lorem ipsum, you'll get past a lot of designer sites, and then you'll get to a lot of websites that have never replaced the lorem ipsum. They're out there. Hundreds of them, probably. Um, Lastly, have fun with it. Again, Human-centric design is not about being serious humans, it's about being humans. And I think this is a good example from Firefox, which likes to be a kind of human company. They wanted to tell people about the new features of their browser. So rather than just telling you, hey, you can take a screenshot now, they have a funny quote from Wayne Gretzky, you know, hockey superstar, about screenshots that you know it just makes you like Firefox a little bit more. And so much of the words on the internet should be doing that. And I think we should always be thinking about, is the message making me the organization, the the business that you want to be talking to and working with? And, um, you know, that's, those are my thoughts. Again, um, I encourage you to really not start talking about context context-sensitive help more, because that's what I wanted to do when I, when I suggested this presentation, to get people talking about it, because it's a big topic, but it isn't always discussed as much as other topics. Thank you very much. <laughs> do I have any questions? I mean, I think the, the logic of, of the mobile experience is to understand that if you have location services turned on, we can give you a lot more location-specific help. You know, I think that, in general, the experience is not going to be radically different if it's not um, relevant to your location. I think we should make sure that the concise part is gotten right. And if you're, if you're building within that you know, mobile experience, you better not make it too hard, because people won't even look for it. Yes, thank you. Um, is always usually a throw-in at the end, last minute kind of, well, we think this might be helpful here. Um, And I usually get pulled in to help make it make sense. Um, do you have any, I guess, um, tactical suggestions of ways to get people to think about that from the start, working with UXs and other business areas? You know, I, I think the important thing is to understand the user issues up front. Where are we going to have friction moments? Where are there? Is there going to be complexity? I think that's hard because. There are operational questions that don't always become through in your initial research. But I think it's important that we are looking at those questions. Um, for example, um, on a Superfund side, you often have to put your member number in to log in to the, to the website. Nobody knows their Superfund member number. How do we solve that problem for these people? Because otherwise, you're just going to go and call and that's going to be frustrating. So look for the problems, and, and that, that's a hard thing to do, but it's worth doing. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this presentation from UX Australia 2018. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.